0: You're listening to the In The Rhythm Podcast from the Johnson & Johnson Institute. Dr. Bradford and Dr. Singleton are being compensated by and presenting on behalf of Biosense Webster, Inc. and must present information in accordance with applicable
1: regulatory requirements.
2: For me, what's exciting is understanding when to bring each therapy to given patients. I think traditionally, if you think about pacing we had a lot of pacing induced myopathy now with how effective safe and efficient left bundle pacing has become it's really easy to offer that
0: I'm very excited about the the futures in EP and it's just a such a rapidly advancing field and when I look at where I was when I started practice and where I am now things have changed
1: Hi everyone, welcome to this In The Rhythm podcast from Biosense Webster, Dave Jackson with you. We've got a great program lined up today with two very special guests who are going to be sharing a little bit about life after fellowship, and we think you'll enjoy the program as we move along. Let's get right to it. Our first guest is Dr. Natalie Bradford. Dr. Bradford, welcome to In The Rhythm. Would you please give us a a little introduction? Tell us a little bit about your career path and what you're doing now.
0: Good morning. Hi, I'm Natalie Bradford. I'm an electrophysiologist at Atrium Wake Forest Baptist here in Winston-Salem. I've been in practice since 2017. I had two years in private practice and then came back to my training here in Winston-Salem and happy to be in the lab here for three years.
1: Thanks, Dr. Bradford. Next up is Dr. Matthew Singleton.
2: Welcome to the podcast. What you tell us about yourself? Good morning. My name is Matthew Singleton. I'm one of six cardiac electrophysiologists at WellSpan Health in York, Pennsylvania. I had the privilege of learning from Natalie during my electrophysiology fellowship at Wake Forest. I've been in practice for almost two years now.
1: Fantastic, Dr. Singleton. What were some of the highlights, if you will, or beginning learnings when you went from your studies to starting your practice?
2: You know, I think my transition was pretty smooth. I was very eager to start and my partners knew that. Before I started, they actually had three weeks of cases booked for me. So I started right away. My first ablation was on July 1st and it was a a pretty smooth transition with the highly supportive environment. I still remember my first day, my partner sitting back in the control room, watching the whole thing, kind of being that security blanket. As a fellow, you're used to having the attending there in case you have any questions or any Equipment problems. He was kind of that same thing for me. It was a pretty smooth transition with really supportive partners that I think makes all the difference.
1: Excellent. Can you tell us about your first cases out of fellowship? Were you able to be
2: selective? You know, I think I really just trusted the head of my group to guide me in that. So in fellowship, you know, we were taking out 30 year old leads and doing VTs, but that's probably not the ideal way to start your first few weeks while you're learning the flow of the lab and you're learning the equipment. So I started off with just bread and butter, AVNRT, AFib devices, just to get my feet wet and have everyone get to know each other. And again, that was in a very supportive environment where in my first few cases, I always had one of my senior partners within earshot. So if there were any problems, they were there. With that support system, I was pretty comfortable kind of ramping up and taking on the complicated cases that I tackled in fellowship within the first few months.
1: Dr. Bradford, tell us what you remember about getting started setting up and your experience through all of that.
0: Yeah, so when I started in private practice, I took a good amount of time to get my family settled and to get my life settled before starting in the lab. And then I started with the cases that I was most proficient in in fellowship. But I do remember Within the first month, I had a more complex case come into the hospital that I felt like I needed to, to try to tackle. And I didn't really feel ready for that complex case. I felt like I was still getting to know my surroundings, my team, my staff. And so I reached out to my partner and said, you know, can we tackle this together? Can you be available? They were there for me, and we were able to take care of that patient in VT Storm. That was a more complex case at that point in my career. And I think that's what I recommend, you know, if you are challenged with a case, it's more difficult early on, ask for help, look for support, because, you know, we all want to support each other. And fortunately, I was in a practice where I found an electrophysiologist who I was interested in mentoring. It really varies on whatever practice you join, and you need to look for the practice that best suits your personality and your needs.
1: Mm, excellent. So for both of you, you're building teams and you're building a workflow and you're building processes. I'm curious what your experiences were like in that very moment of building a team, so building that camaraderie and that uh, intuitiveness that that everyone wants within their team. So Dr. Sington, what's it been like building a team?
2: I think a lot of it depends on how much infrastructure and team is already present when you join. And I was fortunate to come into a fairly ready-made practice where I was replacing an electrophysiologist who was retiring. And it was a pretty high-functioning system where everything had been ironed out. So it was pretty facile from that point of view. But even if the team is present, I think learning how you fit within the team is still a really important thing. And I think honesty and just being true to yourself is the way to go. I mean, everyone's different in terms of the way they act and feel in the lab. There are some people who are really relaxed and jovial and other people who you know, run more of a tight ship and are um, more tense when they operate. But whatever you are, I think you just have to be that because the truth is if you try to be something you're not, if you're operating for 12 hours a day for three or four days a week for a year, the real you is going to come out and it's much easier to just be yourself and be upfront from the very beginning. And that way the lab staff know what they're getting into, and they know you can trust you. It worked really well.
1: Mm, Excellent. Dr. Bradford, what about you?
0: I think when, you know, getting to know your team and establishing your team, you have to recognize that your role has changed from fellow to attending. And, that you have to work to build that relationship, that the team may already be in place and you're joining this team and you want to become a leader. And the way to do that is to show mutual respect and to deliver well thought out choices with confidence. So you have to show them that you're, you're confident and you're level headed. And I think that is what builds the team and then you have to learn to speak up but not overreact to what's going on in the room and um, that really helps bring the team together and then they can quickly learn that you're the leader and build with you so you know one of the most important things about being in the ep lab is that it is the team effort and this is your work family and so you want to get to know them further and that kind of builds the whole team structure.
1: How have you been able to identify what you just said? I want to go back to you, Dr. Bradford. How have you been able to pull the best out of the individuals that are on the team, find out what their working strengths are, put them in positions to where they can succeed, they can, they can be the best they are, they can be uh, uh, very transparent in how they operate, and in, in because of that, enhance the entire team? What are some of the experiences that come to your mind?
0: I think it's just really taking the time to get to know them. When you're first starting out in a group and you're new to the team, you need to take that extra time observing how everything's done, how the prep works, how the setup works, seeing what people's strengths are and what their weaknesses are, and maybe addressing those and talking to them about what their level of interest is. So once you know the members of your team, and maybe you build a relationship with that team, that's when everyone starts to grow together. They have to have confidence in you in order to want to learn from you and want to grow. Same for you, Dr. Singleton?
2: Yeah, you know, as I think about confidence and building a relationship with the staff, one thing that's really helpful in life is if your confidence and your competence are proportionate. So if you're able to accurately assess how good you are at something and you deliver, that really helps build the relationship but it's also important to be completely honest. You know, no one expects you to be the best at everything. And I may be able to, you know, get through a fib and have it be a very smooth process. But if at the end of the day, there's an inpatient add-on by V, being able to honestly say, and well, I hope you all brought popcorn and stools because you're going to watch the struggle to get into the CS from above. I think that, that diffuses the situation and lets them know, all right, he knows he's not awesome at by Vs. And You know, he may have to call his senior partner to come in and help us get down that lateral branch or something like that. I think that goes a long way towards letting them know that you're confident in what you're actually competent in and have the presence of mind to know where your strengths do not lie.
1: I'd like to go towards, uh, you know, with administrators or funding in the lab and and, and getting things moving in the direction that we want. What are some of the challenges that you faced? Anything come to mind, Dr. Singleton?
2: Yeah, I think the two things that come to mind, number one, the EP lab and the EP group is a big ship. You have to be patient. So if if you're asking for something and within the first three months, you haven't achieved it, and it's a big capital expenditure or an additional lab or two, you have to recognize that big ships move slowly and steer slowly. And you have to be patient. Things are going to require a lot of meetings and, and negotiation and talking before anything happens. But the truth is, if you're persistent, you can make those big changes. I think the other thing is that you have to make sure that you have buy-in from all parties involved. So if you go to the administration and you say, I want this, and they look at it as, oh, you're just asking for another thing, you just want a fancy new toy, they're more likely to say, oh, okay, we'll we'll run that through the budget, and then it just gets put on the back burner and never happens. But if you understand the negotiation and the administration's perspective of saying, well, here's our goals, here's the needs of our population, here's our bottom line, here's our resources, this proposal is here's the return on investment, here's how it influences the health of our population. And I think if you make it, if you frame it in that way as a win win for everyone involved, it really helps elicit buy in. And again, the buy in may be slow and it may take a while to elicit change or more resources, but I do think it does happen.
0: I totally agree with what everything Matt said. In your early career, negotiating for new necessary equipment is is something that's very novel, something very new to you. And you have to point out all of those things. You have to go to administration and show them what the utility of what you're asking for and how that drives patient referrals and productivity. And it's, I I echo Matt in that it's just so important to involve your partners because you want to make sure you have their support and that you're doing this as a collaborative effort for what's best for for the lab. And when I started in 2017, there were lots of things I had to negotiate for. I mean, those are most commonly things that – are critical to your practice. Maybe that's, you know, the mapping system and catheters that you're most familiar and comfortable with. And that's what you should be using when you're starting your practice. But also it was the newer technology in 2017 of things like uh, leadless pacemakers and watchmen and now things like left bundle area tools. So we know that that's important for um, modern practice and it's critical to what we do and we just have to convince um, our administrators with the help of our partners and our team.
1: I'm curious if there are things that you remember clearly that affected your job search and then also helped you overcome uh, maybe some unexpected challenges that you had in your early career.
0: You know, on my job search, and I did change practices early in my career from private practice back to academics, and uh, I can explain that further, but In my job search, I was looking for somewhere where the geography kind of worked for my family. I wanted to be close to both sides of our family and grandparents close to the kids. So I wanted to stay in the southeast and driving distance. And so I started by reaching out to practices in this general area. I had a lot of contacts through training. I had a lot of contacts from my father being a cardiologist in the area and then I ultimately found my position through my mentors here at Wake Forest, got me in contact with someone. And I was looking for that mentorship locally, a mentor in the, the program that I went to that was interested in being supportive and, and help with early practice transition. But there were some places that I went that I didn't find that. There were some places that I went and, you know, you want to meet with who those partners are, ask them questions about their practice. And I remember there was one practice I went to and I was having lunch and I asked them about more complex cases, how they manage those. And they told me that with their extractions, they weren't a big extraction program, but they occasionally did them, but they didn't really feel confident in them. But yet they would still do them. They knew that they were gonna have high complications rates, but occasionally they did them. And that was that was it for me. That wasn't the practice for me. So you want to make sure that you have confidence in the partners that you're gonna be joining. So that that was something that really struck out. And so that mentorship is important. And why did I transition from private practice back to academics? In my group in East Tennessee, I had a lovely practice, a great group of of supportive guys. I had a wonderful mentor and I had a good lab situation, but I had a very unfortunate call schedule. So you really need to think about what life is going to look like and plan for for those things. I mean, I was up all night one night every week and so there was never a break and it wasn't the the right practice for me. So I was very happy to come back to academics. I was very happy to have the opportunity to teach i think that was something that i was missing in private practice and i really had a thirst for being more involved in in research and staying up to date on research and that was available to me in the academic setting so i was thrilled to come back
2: yeah i think my job search was rather complicated in that i didn't have a lot of limitations so the geography of my job search spanned from Pennsylvania to Florida to Texas and everywhere in between. So it was pretty broad search. I interviewed both private practice, clinical community jobs, as well as academics. I had interest in both. And I really could have seen myself being happy in either situation. And in retrospect, I think what was most striking is there are really, really great jobs and there are really, really bad jobs. And it is not like they're all equal and some are a little better in some ways and some are better in others. There are some where you have awful call schedule, subpar partners, an unsupportive administration, poor compensation, poor geography. There are just some that are really bad and some that are really good. So I think it's very important to cast a wide net. If you think about how important the job search is for your future life, what is it? Is it worth you know taking a day or two off fellowship to interview at another spot? It really is. Unless you are 100% sure you found the perfect job, I would keep looking and keep all your options open. Now, where I ended up was just an absolute dream job. And along the way, people said that your partners were so important. But I remember thinking, yeah, but geography is important and call schedule is important. In retrospect, the partners are as important as everyone said, or more. I learned more from my partners and honestly have more trust in my partners than anything else I could imagine. I mean, I trust my partners to operate on my wife, which I think is the highest compliment you can give to someone. They're technically incredible, amazingly supportive. You know, and that ties in with the unexpected challenges. So in fellowship, we did a lot of cases, we had complications, and it hurt and it was painful, but it was somehow different than when I was the responsible person and it was my patient. And I didn't have struggles with having that of having that responsibility. But when there was a complication, I have to say, it hit me much harder than I thought it would. And that's where the partners make all the difference. I still remember I had a complication and I was actually considering just quitting and saying, this just isn't going to work out because I was really shaken up by it. But all of my partners were right there and they wouldn't let me quit. I tried to take some time off. And they're like, no, you need to get back in the lab. Come help me with this case tomorrow. One of my partners said, I have too much to learn from you. You can't quit. You're still teaching me so much. And I I had one of my partners right there with me at the bedside saying this complication happens. I've seen the way he operates. If it could happen to him, it could happen to anyone. That, that support um, is just, I, I can't overstate the importance of that. The I remember one night I was on call, a night I had a complication, and my partner, he called the operator and he took call. He didn't tell me. I didn't even know. I thought it was just a great call night and I didn't get any calls. But that kind of support and where it really matters is when you have a tough day, when you have a complication, when you have a failure to cure a patient. That's where that partnership matters. And I can't overstate the importance of it and how it has affected my long-term career and life trajectory. The, The partners are everything.
1: Well, it's great to hear how supportive your partners were through such a difficult time. Now, in, in addition to the great support from your partners, how has mentorship also helped you both throughout your careers?
0: Mentorship is so important, particularly in your early career. And I've had that transition from, you know, I, I still receive a lot of mentorship from my senior partners and feel so supportive. But now I'm also being a mentor to. Um, young EPs. And I've learned so much from, you know, Matt and I overlapped and I've learned so much from the way Matt asked for mentorship from my group because, and I wish I had known this earlier. He is so thoughtful in that whenever he has a question, he has researched it. He's thought about it. And then he puts an email together and he sends it to the entire group and he gets the input of the senior partners and us as junior partners. And we all learn from each other. And it sounds like he's doing exactly what I would recommend, which is getting mentorship from inside your institution and outside your institution because they have a different perspective of things. And I think it's great to have all those levels of mentorship. And I have found in my own history, that getting support from similar level colleagues is a great resource. I like to share both my failures and my successes with those colleagues. It's really, it's really a great community, and it's um, good to share those cases and to have that support from all levels. And I really enjoy, you know, developing myself as a mentor to those people that we're training and putting out um, into um, practice and are doing so wonderfully like Dr. Singleton.
2: There's so many aspects to mentorship. And I think when you're in training versus when you're in practice, it can look very different. I remember training, sometime the mentorship was very painful. I, you know, as I alluded to earlier and talking about a BIV at the end of the day, I'm not awesome at BIVs and I was even less awesome as a fellow. Um, we were a high volume ablation center and I didn't do a lot of BIVs. And when I did, it generally wasn't long before the attending took the catheter and pushed me out of the way when I was struggling. So my first year of fellowship... Except me. I'm sorry? Except me. That's exactly right. So my first year of fellowship, Natalie wasn't there. And my second year, she was. And I still remember um, the by v we did together. I'm sure you remember this, Natalie, where I, I struggled and I kept struggling and I was eventually able to engage the CS and eventually able to get in the branch and, and eventually I got it. And I kept looking over like, surely she's going to take the catheter and she never did. And I finally got in and I was so proud of myself. And then I split the sheath and pulled the whole thing out. And I wasn't sure if she was going to A, punch me in the face or B, kick me out of the operating room. And either would have been totally appropriate, but I'll never forget. She looked at me and she said, now do it again. And I, I was just incredulous. I didn't understand what she meant. And she said, well, you've gotten the CS, you've gotten the branches, you know where they are. It should be easy this time. Um, and she sat there and watched me do that whole darn procedure a second time. So that kind of mentorship, you know, you don't even hear about that, much less see it. But it's hard to overstate how that influences your, your life. And I still think of her every time I struggle through a Bi-V. Um, but, you know, mentorship when you're in practice can look very different. I'm in a relatively unusual group in that the six of us are, I think, very complementary and very different. For each procedure, there's generally two or three of us who do that, but we don't all do that. So we may do a lot of watchmans, but 95% of them go through our one watchman specialist. We may do a lot of VTs, but 95% of them go through our one VT specialist. And because of that, we're very complementary. So we learn a lot from each other. And as I think about what my practice looked like on day one of being an attending versus now, you know, the bedrock was all laid there in fellowship and that's the basic way I do things, but so many things are different. And in fellowship, I'd never seen a zero fluoroscopy AFib ablation or left bundle pacing or cardio neural ablation. And all of those are things that I picked up either from my partners or other peers. And And that's where, you know, visiting other, operators going to tech sites. One of the most helpful things I've found in my ongoing professional growth is continuing to see other electrophysiologists. Generally, once every three months, I take a day off to travel to a different hospital in a different part of the country to watch a different operator who trained at a different institution has different styles to see the way they approach the same problems that I'm facing. I usually fly out on Thursday afternoon and have dinner with them and pick their brain about how they think about the future and how they think about the culture in their lab. And then I watch them operate all day Friday and then debrief with them after, and then fly home. That one day or one and a half day in investment pays huge dividends in terms of my ongoing professional advancement. Because I think if you don't keep exposing yourself to opportunities like that, you stagnate. And there's a lot of things that you can learn from papers and, and the latest articles but the truth is there's no substitute for watching someone's hands move through a procedure and having the bi-directional communication opportunity to pick their brain about, oh, why do you do it that way? Oh, I've never thought about that. I think you know, my mentor, Patrick Whalen, said there, you can learn something from watching anyone operate. And I really believe that and love exposing myself to those opportunities.
1: Again, you teed me up really nicely there. I'm curious what's got you both excited right now about practice, about technology, about new techniques, about new ways to uh, engage in patient care and advance your practice. What, What gets you up every morning excited to move things forward?
2: For me, what's exciting is understanding better when to bring each therapy to given patients. I think traditionally, if you think about pacing, we we had a lot of pacing induced myopathy. Now with the how effective, safe, and efficient left bundle pacing has become, it's really easy to offer that as almost our default pacing modality. I, I like to think we're preventing a lot of downstream Biv upgrades. Um, and with regard to ablations, I think understanding when in the disease course it's appropriate to offer the therapy is huge. We've seen the the Smash VT and Vanquish trials and understanding that, you know, waiting until someone Has in VT storm and has had recurrent shocks and has failed escalating dose of amiodarone is probably not the best strategy. And the recent AFib trials, if you look at progressive AF, understanding that ablation is a disease-modifying agent and we can really influence someone's long-term outcomes if we bring the therapy to them earlier in the disease course, it's really changed the way I think about when to offer the therapy to patients. And it's allowed for really informed, educated patient discussions in clinic that are, it's very exciting. and gets me excited in the morning.
0: I'm very excited about the, the futures in EP, and it's just a such a rapidly advancing field. And when I look at where I was when I started practice and where I am now, things have changed quickly, and I am surprised by how my practice has changed over the past five or six years, and it will continue to do so. And I, I think what I'm very excited about, I'm, I echo um, Dr. Singleton, I'm so excited about conduction system pacing, which I'm doing in the majority of patients and what that has to offer uh, long-term, as well as pulse field ablation. This is an exciting, exciting time in EP, and our practices change rapidly. I think I really now appreciate all the, the resources we have to um, Learn from our vendors to go to um, supportive sites and get your hands on and learn from what the new technology available is to you. That that can really change your practice dramatically. And it's going and learning and seeing, okay, does this work with my workflow or is this something I need to be thinking forward to in the future? For instance, In my AFib ablations and my setup has changed dramatically since I worked with Matt. I'm now doing low fluoro and I went ahead and I switched to a steerable sheath for my AFib ablations in preparation for pulse-field ablation.
1: As we close out this episode, what is something you wish you had known or or would have been helpful to know as a fellow getting ready to transition?
2: As I'm thinking about what I wish I would have known and what's helpful to know, you know, as you think about really nailing the transition from fellowship to Practice. Asking how to do that well is a little bit like asking an Olympic runner on the morning of their case, What's your plan? How are you going to do a good job? A little bit of it is execution. You know, oh, I wore these shoes today and the weather is this and the ground looks like this. But the truth is, at that point, 98% of it has been preordained. And the training that they've put in in the years preceding that day has already determined the outcome of the race. I think the same thing is true of the transition to practice. When you're making that transition, it's your day to execute. But the truth is, whether you're going to succeed or not, that's already been determined by all the hours you put in, all the opportunities you took to pick the brains of your mentors and watch their hands and have them watch yours. It's just time to execute. So I think it's not something to be terribly anxious about. You are fully trained. If you were hired, it's because your institution and your group wants you. They see all the value you bring to the table. And it's just time to show up, deliver, and run the race.
0: So, things I wish I would have known when I was um, transitioning to practices, you know, I think I wish I would have known what the time commitment was and how different it is to uh, manage high volume practice, you know, that you have to make time for. yourself, you have to make time for urgent cases. You have to limit certain bookings. You you can't say yes to everything. You have to know when to say no. And you may be leaving fellowship where you are used to doing call and up all night, but that may be not how you want to live the rest of your life. And to think about what you want um, in the long term. Also, I was told, but it's hard to to appreciate until you're in it, how quickly things change in EP and how different your practice may be um, year one versus year five and how different your, your setup and how you do things may be, that things move quickly and you need to also give yourself time to prepare for that. And I think I've learned something very valuable from you know mentorship and being a mentor that I wish I had known how supportive the EP community is And I have really learned from Matt that, you know, reaching out to colleagues um, everywhere in a formal manner, emailing them, getting their information, how valuable that can be. And so I've learned that from him and others. And um, uh, I'm I'm grateful from what I learned from um, all the EPs around me, and particularly those that are early in practice. This podcast is sponsored by Biosense Webster, Inc. The information contained in this podcast and findings and conclusions expressed are those reached independently by the authors. Copyright 2023, Johnson & Johnson Services, Inc. All rights reserved, EOS number 251617-230621.